Welcome to the Business Resilience Decoded podcast, brought to you by Asfalis Advisors and the Disaster Recovery Journal. Crisis management in today's world is ever-changing, and this podcast is our commitment to help you navigate successful outcomes for any crisis you may face. I'm your host, Vanessa Matthews. I specialize in providing insights and solutions for crisis, continuity, and resilience across industries from real estate and healthcare to terrorism in the airline and transportation worlds. No matter what industry you're in, this podcast will provide you the tools to build resilience in your organization. Welcome back to another episode of the Business Resilience Decoded podcast. Today, I'm super excited because we're going to be speaking with Brock Long. He's the executive chairman of Haggerty Consulting. And the topic for today's episode is what you need to know about infrastructure for emergency managers. But before we get started, I want to share a few resilience resources and reminders. In Asphalus News, there's three things that you need to know. Number one, if you want to recommend someone to be a guest on our podcast. Number two, if you would like to download our five-step crisis strategy that you can use to navigate any business through any crisis in any industry. And if you would like to request me, your host, to be a speaker for an upcoming program you have in 2022, all three of those links can be found in our show notes. For Disaster Recovery Journal, if you would like to learn more about upcoming webinars on Wednesdays, the DRJ Journal Conference, as well as the journal itself, you can also find those links in our show notes for today's episode. And lastly, if you enjoy our podcast, you know, like, comment, review on Apple Podcasts. The more that you guys do this, it one, helps us to know where to find you. But secondly, it helps us to know that you're actually getting value from this content. So let's dive right in and meet our guest, Brock Long. How you doing? That's great to see you. Yeah, it's good to see you. I had a good time uh, meeting you then in Charlotte during the Hood Hargit breakfast. Yes. <laughs> so for our listeners, I had a chance to meet Brock actually in 2021, and uh, I couldn't stop laughing, number one. But number two, it was just really, really great to hear a former FEMA administrator to talk through their experiences. And so... Um, I stood in a line and I was like, hey, Brock, would you mind speaking to us on our podcast? And he agreed. So today you guys are going to get some exclusive time to hear from Brock Long. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> probably couldn't find anybody better. <laughs> All right. So first question is, where are you located? What part of the world are you in? Is it cold or hot? <laughs> I am 45 minutes north of you in Hickory, North Carolina, just north of Charlotte. So, uh, yeah, I was uh, kind of born and raised in the in, in Catawba County. Never thought I would move back here after college. But my wife and I have found that this is a great place to raise two boys. And we're trying to do the best that we can at that. <laughs> so um, let's get into some of our questions today. So you've been in emergency management for over 20 years. And I LinkedIn stalked you <laughs> before the interview today. So can you talk us through, you know, when your career kind of started back in 99 and up to 2017? Well, I mean, I, I've had a tremendously blessed career um, and been able to do some amazing things in a short time. And honestly, I think that, you know, I stumbled into emergency management. I went to Appalachian State University. I uh, wasn't sure what I wanted to do after I completed my undergraduate. So I went to uh, got to get a master's in public administration with a focus on city county management. But while I was there, I was exposed to the whole realm of emergency management and FEMA. But in 1999, nobody really knew what FEMA was. And, you know, the career of an emergency manager was pretty, you know, it wasn't defined. And I, I really feel like I got into the career field at the right time. 
uh, and was able to excel as a result of that and uh, help to professionalize what we do as emergency managers. And, you know, my first job out of school was in Savannah, Georgia, with the Georgia Emergency Management Agency, where you went to school in Savannah State, if I remember correctly. Yep. And, um, and uh, you know, lived there and did school and university safety. Uh, became a hurricane program manager involved with designing state evacuation uh, evacuation plans for the state and coordinating with the states around us. Interviewed with FEMA on the morning on 11, uh, FEMA Region 4, and got the job somehow. Uh, became a hurricane program specialist and was promoted to a hurricane program manager for FEMA Region 4. So I had Mississippi to North Carolina, those six coastal states, and was largely in charge of evacuation planning and ran an operational team at the National Hurricane Center called the Hurricane Liaison Team. And we would watch hurricane forecasts come in, try to turn the forecast into risk and vulnerability assessments for our local and state partners to Department of Defense, whoever may needed the information. And um, and then from there, uh, you know, after Katrina hit, you know, if you remember like Charlie, Francis, Ivan, Gene, and then the, the next year, you know, our weakest link and our last disaster and Katrina hits and the whole world comes crashing down on FEMA, right? So, uh, you know, and so I, I decided to step out. I went into the private sector and then I got a phone call from Governor Bob Riley in Alabama six months after I stepped out of FEMA to be the director of Alabama Emergency Management Agency. And Vanessa, went, you know, I, I always say that every time I change jobs, something catastrophic seemed to happen. So when I did that, I got Deepwater Horizon, the BP Deepwater Horizon oil spill you know, which was a tragic, tragic event, and then went back into consulting and Haggerty Consulting uh, as a vice president, and then got a phone call from the White House one day. <laughs> so let's pause right there, because that was a lot. So first, yeah. shout out to App State. My old colleagues at Lowe's, it, it was App State territory. <laughs> That's right. That's right. We, we call it the App State Mafia, by the way. That's what it is. That's how it is. Oh, gosh. <laughs> and major shout out to Savannah, Georgia. So my career started at the Chatham Emergency Management Agency. So if you guys are listening, thank you for taking a risk on me for my first job. And shout out to Savannah State University as well and to GEMA. Thank you. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, I have a couple questions here. So 2017 happens. You get a phone call from the White House. First of all, like, where were you when you got the phone call? It, like, did you really believe that it was them calling you? Yeah, so the first the first phone call. First of all, if it pops up unknown on your phone, answer it. Because <laughs> it could be the White House. And they're only going to call like a handful of times. And then, you know, um, but don't ever turn down a phone call from the White House. Uh, you know, put your politics aside. You know, if you've got a chance to go serve your country, you should do it. I really didn't think that, I would ever get a phone call from the White House. Um, I didn't, you know, I don't make campaign contributions. I don't, uh, I didn't know President Trump. I didn't meet the president until after I was sworn in and confirmed by the Senate. You know, the, but the first phone call that came in was pretty obscure. Would you like to serve your country? And, you know, and at, the, at the time I was like, is this you, Vanessa? Are you playing with me? You know, who's, you know, who is the, the other end? But then when I hung up, the phone rang again, and it was General John Kelly, uh, who was the Secretary of Homeland Security at the time. And then, of course, he went on to be Chief of Staff. And, you know, and it's, it's pretty awesome. He said, Brock, why do you want to come work in this cesspool I got to deal with up here in D.C. every day? And I said, General, I don't. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and that's how we started the conversation. But then I said, I'm, I'm ready. To, I want to serve my country. And, you know, basically laid out a vision on the fly of what I would do to help FEMA help this nation become more resilient. Yeah, awesome. So I've got to ask, like, tell me your most memorable moment of working with former President Trump. 
Oh man. Uh, where do you start? (laughs) (laughs) You you know, um, you know, regardless of the opinions that are out there about the president, you know, the one thing that I will say is that he was very supportive of the federal emergency management agency and the people that were there. He held, he often held cabinet level uh, meetings. He would bring his entire cabinet into FEMA. He realized how complex our job was. He never beat us up. He, uh, he had full support of our agency. And I really, I really appreciate that. But, you know, I mean, when I think back of everything that we did, you know, and everything that went forward. And, and I only had two months in office, Vanessa, before the whole world came crashing down with Harvey, Irma, Maria, wildfires. And I think it was like 220 events in two years, if you look at all the wildfires and declared disasters together. So like a brand new disaster every three days, Vanessa, uh, you know, is what you're looking at. And when you think back to everything, you know, I've forgotten a lot of stuff. I've tried to forget a lot of stuff, but then I've also, uh, you know, you think back and there's nothing like riding on Air Force One, uh, you know, being in there, you know, on Air Force One or in one and listening to the conversations and or standing in the Oval Office and advising the president of the United States is it takes you some time to really wrap your head around that. Yeah, it's an amazing experience. Yeah. Yeah. So you coordinated the federal government's response to over 145 presidentially declared disasters, 112 wildfires, including three of the nation's most devastating hurricanes and five of the worst wildfires ever experienced. And during this time, nearly $44 billion of disaster activity occurred under various federal recovery programs. So you already started to share, but can you give us the perspective of what is it like to inherit (laughs) FEMA be the administrator? Well, uh, again, every time I change jobs, something catastrophic happens. So, uh, you know, of course, you know, people aren't going to let me change jobs ever again. Um, Because when (laughs) I left FEMA, then COVID came about. So, (laughs) but the... um, you know, here's the thing that the numbers, the, the, the numbers were huge. Um, if you look at all of the recovery dollars that are going to go out to continue fixing communities, and you know this, recovery is a 10-year, 15-year process. It's not, you know, FEMA rushes in, provides a Band-Aid, and then gets out and goes, we're still cutting checks to the city of New Orleans as a result of Hurricane Katrina in this country. So to give you, long-term recovery is very long. But if you look at all the recovery dollars that are going to go out of FEMA as a result of the two years I was there, 2017 and 18, it's more than the nine previous FEMA administrators before me combined. Wrap your head around that. So in two years, we're going to put more recovery dollars out there than the entire agency put out in its entirety since inception back in the Carter era, President Carter era. Um, The other thing about FEMA is, is that people have no idea how how huge the jurisdiction is of FEMA from the standpoint of across the globe. We cover half the globe, if you think about it. You know, uh, one of the events that occurred that Americans have no idea about, a majority, I would say probably 99.5% of Americans have no idea about, is that Hurricane uh, U2 um, hit Tinian and Saipan in the Pacific, you know, way out in the Pacific Ocean and uh, wiped the place out. It was the strongest hurricane ever recorded on record, and you've never heard of it. Most Americans have never heard of it. You know, a majority of what FEMA does, Americans don't hear about it. They only hear about the ones that are politically charged, the ones that don't go well in the eyes of Americans and the media and everything else. And, you know, as such, FEMA FEMA takes a beating and and, and it's unjust in some cases. Yes, we're not perfect. Yes, we make mistakes. Yes, the system's too complex and you have the right to hit us over the head. 
Uh, we do have to do better to reduce the complexity of the recovery, you know, different things. But man, that agency is full of golden hearted people that bust their rear ends for this country every day and never get a pat on the back. And, uh, and a majority of the events that we respond to never make the news. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, and that's tough on the profession of emergency management, right? And largely it's because we've never defined it very well. People don't understand what our mission is. And FEMA's mission is huge. Mm -hmm. When you come into FEMA, you're briefed on all these programmatic aspects. You're one of the largest insurers in the country. You run the NFIP, the National Flood Insurance Program. You also run national continuity programs for the entire executive branch of government. So you're a continuity special, specialist, right? So imagine being in charge of continuity and making sure that the executive branch, the entire executive branch of government works regardless of what we face, whether it's a state-sponsored threat, cybersecurity attack, bombs coming from other countries, whatever it may be, it is FEMA's job to make sure that they ensure continuity of the executive branch. It's a huge important mission that most emergency managers are not aware of or citizens are not aware of. In addition to that, you've got to go and hand out over two to three billion dollars of homeland security of grants. The agency passes through 98 percent of the entire grant array from the Department of Homeland Security, where grants pass through agency for the Department of Homeland Security. And now what you're seeing is FEMA, in my opinion, has become a dumping ground for the complex. They're involved in the Afghan refugee uh, mission that's right now. They're involved in the border mission. They're involved in so many things that the agency was never designed to handle and uh, and outside of the legislative scope that I do believe it's time for a discussion within Congress and, and, and the profession of, Vanessa, what do you want FEMA to be good at? Because we cannot be all things to all people. And quite frankly, here's, the, here's one of the biggest things that I've learned. Proper disaster preparedness, response, and recovery is like a chair with four legs, okay? So, you know, imagine the seat that you're sitting in is your community. The first leg that supports that seat is a true culture of preparedness, which does not exist within our citizenry. You know that, and I know that. People are just not prepared. Financially, uh, we're not giving um, people tangible skills, um, you know, to, to be ready from first aid to how to overcome long-term disaster recovery and be ready. I think the way that we ask people to prepare is off. Mm-hmm. I think it needs to be refocused. The second leg of that is, well, going back to that first leg of a cultural preparedness, neighbor helping neighbor is the most important thing in the entire disaster response, right? Understanding how to help your neighbor, yeah. you know, is, is incredibly important. The second leg is a strong state and local government, right? You've got to have a strong state and local government response. It is a governor's disaster, not FEMA. FEMA's assistance is designed to support a governor and help them overcome their gaps when responding to disasters or preparing for disasters, right? The third leg is the private sector, Vanessa. Private sector owns 95% or excuse me, 85% of the infrastructure that we depend on every day. FEMA has no control over a lot of the infrastructure that you depend on, making sure that the lights pop on when you flip the switch is not FEMA's mission. It's not, you know, we're not a regulatory agency of was the power grid maintained well in Puerto Rico or not over the last decade. You know, so it, you know, the private sector really leads the charge in the future of resilience and climate change, in my opinion, not the federal government. And then the fourth leg is FEMA. FEMA's job is to to coordinate the firepower of the federal government, all of the agencies underneath the National Response Plan, down through a governor, ultimately to the local level. And as I've said, disasters are locally executed, state managed, federally supported, not the other way around. 
So when we go into a disaster and all four legs of that chair are attached, like Hurricane Harvey in Texas, the disaster goes pretty well. Not saying that it's hard, not saying that it's sad, you know, not saying that the long-term recovery is not still going on, but FEMA doesn't make the news when all four of those legs are attached to that seat, right? But when you go into Katrina and there's one leg of the chair and it's called FEMA and everybody's expecting FEMA to, to make it what, you know, make it great, you know, make it great after the disaster. Or when you go into Puerto Rico and you're the, you know, FEMA is the only leg to that chair, that chair is very unstable and it's never going to go well and people get upset. And that's the best analogy I can put forward um, about the agency and from what I saw when I was there. But I do think that the business model is broken. Um, I think there's too much being thrown on their plate, but I think internally FEMA could change the business model too, working with Congress to help it actually, you know, complete its mission. Fusion Risk Management is your North Star for operational resilience. The Fusion Framework System provides a foundation that enables you to understand how your business works, how it breaks, and how to put it back together again, which allows you to make data-driven decisions so you can anticipate, prepare, respond, and learn through business disruptions and major crisis events. Head to the link in our show notes to request a demo today. Fusion Risk Management, building a more resilient world together. So let me go back to a couple of things you said, because you dropped a whole lot of nuggets. So I, I think I heard you say locally managed. Locally executed, state managed, federally supported. All right. Yeah. It's a partnership. If the local government's plan is for FEMA to come in and do it all from water, ice, MREs to long-term recovery, that's not a plan that's going to that's gonna work very well. Yeah. 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 I love that. And I can totally understand uh, just from owning my own company about the business model. When you first start out as a professional services company offering your intellectual property and your thought leadership, you say yes to everything. And there has to come a time in your business where you're like, no, it's a complete sentence. And we don't do that. (laughs) Bite off what you're good at, right? Yeah. That's the same problem we have with Haggerty Consulting is, is that uh, unfortunately we've probably turned down a lot of business that I would love to be able to do, but it's just not our expertise or we, we have focus areas in other places. Yeah, absolutely. So the one thing I want to go back to, and I heard you talk about this when you came to Charlotte, was the culture of preparedness and really that personal preparedness piece. And one thing that you have honestly changed my perspective on is you cannot be resilient as a community if financially the people in the community don't have the means to be able to get there. So I know we're focused on infrastructure, but can you just dive in a little bit more about the importance of financial resilience and specifically yeah. maybe what you've seen some other communities do to help people? So in 2017, when Harvey Irma Maria hit, the numbers were off the chart at FEMA. When it came to the number of people we were entering into FEMA individual assistance, there's two forms of recovery assistance. There's individual assistance and public assistance. Public assistance fixes infrastructure that's uninsured. And the, the question for infrastructure is why is it uninsured? <laughs> why is it, why are we fixing uninsured public property? It's kind of a moral hazard. And then there's, there, there's individual assistance, which is a band-aid to the people who are impacted, right? You know, a large part of qualifying for FEMA, you know, FEMA individual assistance is being uninsured. Okay. You have no insurance. You're not properly insured. And the numbers were off the chart, Vanessa. So we were entering more people into individual assistance in 2017 than the decade previous to me combined. 
we can sit there and say it's climate change. We can sit there and say it's, you know, all kinds of problems we can blame. And I, I believe the climate's changing. We can come back to that. But we also have to identify the root cause of the problem and have an adult conversation as to what's going on, why are our numbers off the chart? And the bottom line is, is that if you start to look at the American population, there are studies, and John Hope Bryant, who runs OperationHope.org, is phenomenal and really fulfilling a niche that is needed in this country about how to, you know, break negative cycles with money and enter into a financially resilient, you know, capability in your household or wherever. You know, when you talk to them, you know, some of the numbers would suggest that 70% of Americans live in asset poverty, not income poverty of I don't make enough money to make ends meet. It is asset poverty of I may make six figures a year or more, but I am in debt up to my eyeballs. And listen, I don't want to hit anybody. I don't want to sound holier than thou. I look at the problem and the root cause of the problem. And to me, it becomes asset poverty. Here's the problem in this country. That one of the greatest problems that we have in this country from my humble perspective, my one-sided simple per perspective is that we do, not we do not teach in our school systems and in our communities how prosperity works. We do not teach the importance of, you know, earning the dollar, taking pride in earning a dollar, how to invest that dollar, how to save that dollar. When 70% of Americans don't have three months worth of savings to their name, they cut back on insurance. And in some cases, like what we were seeing in California or Florida is people have paid off their homes and then let their fire insurance or home insurance lapse so that they could have a couple hundred extra bucks in their paycheck each month. And when that happens and the hurricane comes or the wildfire comes and burns their house down, they're, they're homeless. They lose one of their greatest pieces of wealth in the equity in their home. And then the second most expensive expenditure that you'll ever have in your life, Vanessa, is the furniture that goes within it, the contents. So you'll pull back on the contents to save a couple hundred extra bucks or you know tens of dollars, who knows? And I understand that people have frustrations with insurance companies. But insurance is the first line of defense, and we don't teach that anywhere in America, okay? You don't hear it in high school. You don't hear it in college. You don't hear in colleges across America how to invest a dollar into the stock market and not do something that's a fad through an app or whatever, you know, really sitting down with a financial advisor, a very small portion of Americans will sit down with a, a financial advisor. Many people think it's something that's, a, you know, it's a, it's a luxury or whatever. It's a free meeting to sit down with a financial advisor. Over time, they make their money as you make money, right? So, you know, the bottom line is we don't teach prosperity, Vanessa. We don't teach, and we've got to instill financial resiliency because if we ask people in Chatham County, Savannah, Georgia, to go buy three to five days worth of supplies to be ready for that big hurricane or that flood, it's not financially realistic in many communities or in many households. And so, I think when you look at community resilience, you've got to start looking at the comprehensive credit scores like city county managers and business leaders need to look at their community and, and imagine is the comprehensive credit score or FICO score or whatever, you know, FICO scores, whatever it may be, are they going down over a five year period or are they going up? If they're going down, Vanessa, you're going to have an eroding tax base. You're going to have more demand for government services with less tax means you're going to have greater homeland security issues. You're going to have more rentership and homeownership. You're gonna have food deserts over time. You're going to see a community slowly erode. And if we know this, then how do we start having intelligent, 
conversations about helping people change that cycle in their community and going the opposite direction. And that's something that I never hear anybody talk about, Vanessa, when it comes to resilience. We're too focused on just infrastructure and not people. Mm. Not mm. people, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And, and, and people may hate me for saying that. People may you know, vehemently disagree with what I'm saying, but take a look around. Everybody looks good. But I think a lot of people are really struggling behind the scenes and pulling back on the things like insurance being properly insured. Yeah. So then again, we don't teach it. We don't teach it. Well, well, yeah, we teach math, not money. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Calculus, algebra two. And some people really need that, you know, to send the next, you know, create the next electric vehicle or whatever else. That's great. But the majority of us, (laughs) you know, the majority of us, we've gotten rid of the home ec, you know, Mm -hmm. home economics. We've yep. gotten rid of that. So look, because I grew up in a Baptist church, what I would say if I was a pastor is cl- pass the collection plate, Brock, please. <laughs> Thank you for dropping the, the keys because to your point, we don't talk about it and we don't prepare our people. And I, I first learned this working for Gulfstream Aerospace. When we did National Preparedness Month, we focused on the people. I can't open the building and start developing an airplane if my people can't get back in, if they don't have the financial means, if the high schools are not here. And so it starts with them first. So thank you for shedding that light. Right. You take a company like Gulfstream, what, 10, 15,000 employees worldwide, globally, you're in Savannah, you're in Israel. I think you're going to be in China, whatever. You know, I don't know, like, you know, global company. If your employees are not resilient at home from you know, just having a roof over their head to financially, whatever, they're not going to be any good to you if you're calling upon them to be part of your response plan for your company either. Yep. And, um, you know, and it's something in like how many business leaders who, you know, you think back to all your jobs, Vanessa, which owner of a company or which government leader taught you about how the 401k plan actually worked and why you should do it? I bet it's a big fat zero, you know? And so, And that was one of the biggest mechanisms that Congress put in place for people to help them with understanding how retirement is. But they don't teach it in government, you know, the thrift savings plan and government. You know, people are not told about the tax advantages and compound interest over time, how to, you know, diversify their funding and different things. And, you know, it's something that I've become passionate about. And it's a difficult conversation to have. But I do believe that if we can do that, man, we could overcome so many other problems. I mean, you know so many other societal problems by teaching people how prosperity can work in America. Absolutely. So I'm going to go back to infrastructure now for that. So infrastructure in the U.S., it's becoming, maybe not even becoming is the right word anymore. It is prone to failure. Uh, What are some of the primary drivers of that failure? You talked about root causes earlier. Deferred maintenance right off the bat. In some communities, if they are not upkeeping the infrastructure, um, now there's two types of infrastructure. There's government-owned infrastructure and privately-owned infrastructure. Let's go back to the government-owned infrastructure. Um, that could be, you know, FEMA, you know, classifies infrastructure different ways. And, you know, you, you look at a beach, a man, you know, a, a, a human-made beach, you know, a public beach that's maintained by people for the government is technically infrastructure because it, it generates tax, sales tax revenue. But if you don't maintain that beach, or the roads at the local level to get to that beach, then why is it, why should FEMA come in and fix it? Yeah. 
you know, after the fact, you know, and so deferred maintenance is one of the biggest problems on public infrastructure, you know, so making sure that, you know, when you budget, you know, your operational budgets, uh, it's hard for communities, some communities to generate the tax revenue or, you know, to be able to put into their operational budgets to do the maintenance needed on the publicly owned infrastructure. The other thing that we saw and, and like going into Puerto Rico and different things, um, when you see so much of the infrastructure owned by the private sector, you realize you're not in control of it. And uh, look at the energy industry. How much of the gas industry is owned by the government? How much of the electric, electricity industry is owned by the, the federal government? How much of you know, the grocery store supply chains are owned by the federal government? These things are not in my control of FEMA. And, you know, and it's not the Federal Electricity Management Agency. Everybody wants to point to FEMA to tell FEMA, hey, get the lights back on. That's not what we do. Okay. Who owns that infrastructure is what you've got to start asking. So if you're a local emergency manager in Chatham County, let's go back to Chatham County, talk about our friend Dennis Jones, the director there, right? In my opinion, and Dennis, I hope you listen to this podcast, you should be thinking about who owns the infrastructure in your community first, divided into government-owned, private sector-owned. If it's private sector owned infrastructure from the grocery store supply chains to the power, they need to have a spot in your emergency operations center. And they should be dictating, not dictating, but coaching you on where they need the government to step in and help them get their services back up and running rather than the government thinking that they're the incident commander of this disaster and truly in charge, because that's garbage. So, for example, if you're a grocery store supply chain, you know, provider, your, your job is to get food from some wholesaler or whatever, put it into the stores. Where should, you know, where do we need you to do the first push debris, you know, um, removal process after a hurricane? What roads do we need to open for the power companies to get access to their infrastructure or to get the ports back up and running or to get, you know, whatever it may be? We've got to have blue sky day planning conversations around how to reorganize anything from a debris plan to when you think about the power industry, if they can't communicate, I'd drive that multi-communications vehicle over <laughs> to their operations center and I'd park it right there to give them an option on how to communicate with the people they need to talk to rather than just putting these things at ball games on Saturdays, <laughs> you know, and, you know, and I said, that sounds harsh. And there's people that would, you know, hit me across the head and I'm all for incident command, but we've got to refocus and think that it's not just, you know, what we're going to do and here's our government plan to handle the, you know, the humanitarian piece and to do band-aids as the private sector comes up. We got to start asking the private sector what we can do to help them come up quicker and reduce downtime, which is why we went into the community lifelines doctrine that was put forward at FEMA. And we started asking that question, Vanessa. What's got to be working in your community that if it's not working, that people die or life routine is severely disrupted, okay? And when you start thinking about that after going through, and I'll give you an example, you know, nothing was working in, in Puerto Rico, but here's where we made a mistake in Puerto Rico. There was a 30-day food supply on that island before the hurricanes hit, Irma and Maria hit the islands. There was a 30-day food supply on there that had never been factored into any catastrophic plan. Shame on us, all right? We were able to get $2 billion worth of commodities, if I remember the number correctly, into Puerto Rico. The problem was we couldn't communicate to people where to go get it. Who owns the communication infrastructure in Puerto Rico? Is it the federal government? It's not. 
It's the private telecommunications industry. They may have been the first people unable to get to the island. So we should have prioritized instead of food and water, people with the ability to get the communication systems back up and running to be able to communicate to people what's going on, where to go get uh, first aid to food to whatever they needed, right? And backfilled the 30-day food supply with logistics, emergency logistics, in my opinion, right? So when Hurricane Lane was threatening Hawaii the very next year, or the same year, I can't remember what year, it was like right after Maria, the first phone calls we made were to the grocery store chains, the, the private providers of saying how much food is on the island. And we learned that there is anywhere between a three to six day supply of food on the island in Hawaii. You know, what happens if the ports are down? We, you know, let's do an estimate. It would take us 10 to 12 days to get the ports back up and running, airports to seaports, whatever it may be. So we need to backfill 12 days worth of commodities on that island for emergency purposes before the storm gets there. And so we were being smarter. And so we, we started to look at those things. And if you fix the power, for example, you fix the power, then you fix problems across all the other infrastructure. You know, so we, we tried to rethink the way that FEMA worked with the private sector emergency managers, rethink, you know, rethink the way that we work with the private sector. I mean, I could go on for eight hours on that, Vanessa. <laughs> well, look, so at, at the time that this podcast has been recorded, the infrastructure bill that the Biden administration uh, developed was recently passed by the House. It's pending uh, Senate approval. And in Charlotte, uh, at the airing of this podcast, uh, the Vice President Kamala Harris was in Charlotte to uh, discuss how much, how many millions are coming to this city. And so the overall infrastructure package has a trillion dollars of federal investments from transit, rail, broadband, up upgrades, ports, electric vehicles, power, water systems, environmental remediation, just to name a few, right? Um, question for you, Brock, what does this bill mean for emergency managers? Because you know how you can like hear something that sounds like it sounds great, but how do I fit in? How do we follow oh, yeah. that? <laughs> well, there's a couple of things here. I want to come back to disaster cost recovery. So remind me, ask me a question about disaster cost recovery here in a minute. Um, so first of all, when it comes to infrastructure, again, I go back to the community lifelines. All right. So there were seven original, you know, community lifelines, you know, from safety and security to food, water, housing is a lifeline, right? And then you've got power and fuel as a lifeline, health and medical as a lifeline, our hospital systems, which are public and privately owned, are, is a major lifeline, communications, which is a major lifeline. You have transportation in there, right? When you look at this money that's available, we have to be targeted. And I do think that unfortunately, many city county managers and budget officers across you know, states and local governments have been overwhelmed. They look like a deer in headlights right now with all the money that's been coming down as a result of ARPA and CRF funding and everything else. But we still have to take the time to be methodical about how we put this money to work that in, a, in a manner that does the greatest good. A lot of our infrastructure across this country from bridges to airports to whatever, has not, you know, it's been lacking. It needs, you know, just day-to-day -day improvements to meet the demands of growing populations and use and different things that are there. But when an emergency manager thinks about this money, and let's just take like transportation. If there are roads that are in bridges that are constantly knocked out from flooding or blocked, you know, from flooding or, you know, natural disasters or whatever else, you need to target those and pinpoint those and get them in the queue for this infrastructure money as it comes to the state and petition the states and whoever's going to be owning this money to help overcome that. And here's the importance of that. I-40 in North Carolina. 
you go east of Raleigh or east of Benson, North Carolina on I-40, if something tropical comes through and spits in the area, somebody spits in the wrong split place, I-40 goes underwater for weeks at a time. Imagine the loss in revenue from private companies that depend on that I-40. And if you've had minor damage along the coast of North Carolina where people are, can't get back to maybe muck and gut their home from some simple water damage or whatever, it goes from simple water damage to mildew. So it goes from minor damage to destroyed because they can't get home because of this infrastructure keeps flooding, keeps flooding, keeps flooding. And it's happened time and time and time again. We've got, to, we've got to identify the repetitive infrastructure that keeps getting damaged and replaced. Highway 12 in North Carolina along the coast. I often joke that it's been repaired 12 times. And when we have to repair it the 13th time, it'll be called Highway 13, Highway 14. You know, how do we build this infrastructure that's needed to support tourism and different things in a manner that is not vulnerable to hurricanes and natural disasters anymore, right? Infrastructure is so broad, and, and Vice President Harris was actually on the Senate Oversight Committee uh, when I was in office. She was part of the Senate Oversight Committee that you know looked at FEMA to make sure that we were doing the right thing. So I do think that she's got a good understanding of you know what this means. But the other thing that we did uh, while I was at FEMA is we got the Disaster Recovery Reform Act passed, which created the BRIC program, the Building Resilient Infrastructure and in Communities program. Right. So that BRIC program was innovative. Everybody told me we couldn't, we were never going to be able to increase pre-disaster mitigation dollars because it wasn't measurable. And we had the PDM program, which may have provided a hundred million a year across the country, a hundred million divided by 50 states or 16 island territories. It's not a whole lot to do anything with. But the BRIC program came about as a result of the Disaster Recovery Reform Act. And it was designed to focus on fixing the community lifelines. If the community lifelines are what we need, in the community to work. And if they're not working, people die. Then we better be focusing our mitigation dollars on those lifelines, in my opinion, as emergency managers and identifying that to our city county managers and reduce, work yourself out of a job through mitigation of these lifelines. You know, in, in my opinion, is what the emergency manager ought to be thinking, the Dennis Jones of the world ought to be thinking. I love that. Thank you. So before I go into my last question, I'm going to take you back to disaster cost recovery. Uh, so when I was in office, uh, I had to ask Congress for more money three separate times to the disaster relief fund because it kept being depleted because of the sheer volume of disasters and the magnitude of these disasters, right? When Congress granted my approval and listened, you know, granted us the approval to put more money in there, the money went to 20 different federal government agencies to fund over 91 different recovery programs. Think about that. 20 different agencies, 91 different recovery programs. There's not a recovery program. There's not a recovery plan in the country that is remotely indicative of what the reality is of all this money hitting. That does not even include COVID and the pandemic and the money being pushed forward after that. Billions of dollars are coming in. And the city and county management, you know, in the city and county governments, have never been staffed appropriately, have never been educated on how the all of these disaster recovery programs work. Mm -hmm. They have different strings attached from different federal government agencies. Uh, they don't have the ability, the IT system set up to track it all in many cases. They don't have the staff to administer the funding once they accept it and apply for it and accept it. But in many cases, it was just given to them. 
they don't know how to sequence this funding together, Vanessa, to do the greatest good with it. So you've had, you know, for example, the, the CRF funding, which came about uh, as a result of COVID, and then FEMA public assistance money is made available. You could use both funds to do the same thing, right? So a lot of people in communities use their CRF money to overcome the COVID disaster when they could have been reimbursed at 100% by using the FEMA PA funding and use the CRF money for something else. You know, there's, you know, our company at Haggerty Consulting, we help communities navigate this funding and help them sequence it together and become more resilient. Stop the hemorrhaging and become more resilient as, as, you know, as a result of getting it. Because the more money we get, the less we should depend on that money coming from the government in the future, Mm. you know, when it comes to the disaster resilience. And I think that there's so much money out there. You know, Vanessa, if you're, if you're an IT specialist, if you could create the model that says, here's all the money you've been, you're entitled to, you know, Mayor Matthews, if you <laughs> had the, if you had the computer model, it could say, here's all the money and the way it comes down and it hits at different points. There's different ways you can use it. They would spit out if the city of Charlotte would use this money or the city of Savannah would use this money in this manner over the next two, three years, you will be exponentially more resilient in the future. You'd be a very wealthy person because it doesn't exist. Nobody knows how to do that in this country. Part of that is because the definition of resilience is in the eye of the beholder. It means different things to different people. Some people think it's solely around uh, reducing the effects of climate change. Some people think it's around solely infrastructure. I also think that it's part of financial resiliency. You know, resilience is tough and it's tough to, you know, codify and then putting all this money together and ultimately, you know, how do we score it? Shout out to Damien Walsh from uh, Deloitte. He, uh, we, we did a podcast probably, I guess, two years ago now, but we talked about resilience is an interdiscipline and it means a lot of things. But to your point, there are several pillars that have to happen for the word resilient to actually be in existence. Yeah. <laughs> and unfortunately, where we are in this country, we can't have an adult conversation without people getting upset with each other. You know, we can't really sit down and have a an educated adult conversation around what it means you know uh, so much of it's politically charged unfortunately and uh you know what i've learned about disasters is they don't discriminate at all (laughs) they attack anybody and everybody yeah yeah so last question for you brock so with all of this in mind when i think about oregon emergency management when i think about hey dennis Chatham County Emergency Management, when I think about Atlanta Hartsfield Emergency Management Director, the City of Charlotte Emergency Management, Charlotte Airport Emergency Management, uh, Texas, um, Florida, New York, New Jersey, when I think about all of those local county and state emergency managers, what does it look like tactically? You know, what's the three-step, five-step tactical approach to truly achieve resiliency for those folks and then for the private sector? Get back to the basics with the citizens that live in your community. You know, make sure that the way you're asking, you know, citizens to be prepared is realistic. For example, get back to the basics in the schools and in your community about CPR and first aid. One in four of us, according to the Red Cross, is going to do CPR in our lifetime. Probably going to be on your parents or your kids one day, right? And those are the statistics. But how many of us actually know how to do it? I mean, I think that in this country, we kind of look at somebody else and man, man, I hope Vanessa Matthews sure does know CPR. You know, I think that that's the way that, you know, a lot of us are, unfortunately. We got to get back to the basics on 
life-saving skills, how to help your neighbor in disaster, neighbor helping neighbor is the most important thing to the financial resiliency piece, all the way to the extraordinary side of buying a generator for your home. Okay, retrofitting your home for generator. The other thing is, is that when it comes to mitigation, here's the other thing. It can't be a government solution. I'm not a person that believes bigger government's an answer. I don't think that be, bigger FEMA is not going to be the answer to climate change and the future of disasters and saving lives. It, you know, we got to think things differently. Again, I think the private sector can, can organize and lead resiliency far better and quicker and more efficient than the private sector. So, for example, Vanessa. Why do, does the appraisal industry evaluate a home in Charlotte based on just location, square footage, the number of bedrooms, blah, 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 blah. But do they really dig down into how the home was constructed? Did the homeowner put more mitigation capability into the house than their neighbor did? Why is that mitigated house not evaluated much higher than the home that's not? We built more homes in the last year and a half than ever before during the COVID era. To what standard as well, okay? To what standard? To the minimum standard of every state or community. Yeah. Not to a standard that can withstand what mother nature is going to throw at us tomorrow or into the future with, with a changing climate. I kind of laugh at the, you know, the, the, a, a lot of the discussion. Until you pass proper land use planning, residential codes and building codes and reward the homeowners who go beyond the building construction and put mitigation into their homes. We're never going, FEMA's never going to be able to win. Okay. So it's, and the emergency manager's not going to be able to win. They've got to be able to eloquently articulate why land use planning, residential codes, and all of that that I just talked about and tangible skills to our citizenry is important then you've got to be able to understand that an emergency manager in the future has also got to be able to teach their superior, their bosses, mayor, governor, this is what you're entitled to as a result of going through this disaster. Let's set up your goals, your recovery, your response and recovery goals. Let's grab the money you need, not necessarily all of the money that you're entitled to, but let's grab the money that you need and that we can realistically handle. And let's sequence that money in a manner that helps us stop the hemorrhaging and become more resilient down the road. A disaster, one of the biggest things that's missing from the National Disaster Response Framework that FEMA put out is that the first element of that plan should be a cost recovery plan that has the emergency manager really helping the finance divisions of these local and state governments understanding what they're going to do, how they're going to attract this cost what they're entitled to, understanding what they're entitled to and how to use the money, right? Until they do all that, the emergency manager's response job and long-term recovery job is going to be even harder and harder and harder down the road. When it comes to the BRIC grant that's out there, um, over a billion dollars and more money was put into the BRIC program through the infrastructure bill that you were talking about earlier. As I understand it, more money was put in there. There's also HUD Community Development Block Grant Disaster Recovery Mitigation Funding, over $5 billion that was put out there. There's over $8 million in post-disaster FEMA, home, uh, HMGP Hazard Mitigation Grant Program money out there. The money is there, but you've got to educate and go through the training courses and understand how to go get it. Mm. You know, the BRIC program is different than the previous uh, mitigation, Blue Sky Day mitigation program called PDM under FEMA. Stop applying for the BRIC program like you would PDM, 
Okay, it's not the same, right? You know, look at what was a you know successful formula for the communities that won the previous BRIC grant over the last year or two, right? And then you've got to adopt that and write thoughtful applications to go after that because you are competing. Ask the state how much post-disaster mitigation funding is in your state. Most city and county managers have no idea that there could be hundreds of millions of dollars. There's hundreds of millions of dollars in the state of North Carolina for mitigation right now that was as a result of, uh, you know, Hurricane uh, Matthew in Florence, right? Who's educating them on that? It should be the emergency manager and how to go after that funding and put it to work. And then, you know, and then again, here's my advice. If you're an emergency manager, you know, practicing right now, you know, a failure in logistics is unacceptable. You're going to get fired for a failure in logistics and you're going to get fired if the community in which you represent fouls up millions of dollars of recovery funding. I have yet to see an emergency manager ever fired because the mitigation plan was lackluster. We got to flip that over on its head. Community leaders should be fired. Emergency managers should be fired for not doing the right thing to protect their communities from the future of disaster. That's what you call dropping the mic. (laughs) (laughs) Rob, thank you. Thank you, Vanessa. And good luck to you. And uh, don't be a stranger if you ever come to Hickory, North Carolina. Launch on me. Hey, look, I will definitely be there. Look, just, just, just say the word. Thank you for listening to the Business Resilience Decoded podcast, brought to you by Asphalus Advisors and Disaster Recovery Journal. Make sure you check out the show notes for this episode to see all the upcoming events, programs, and ways we can support you. Make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast. Leave us a review and share it with a friend. Thanks again, and I'll talk to you in the next episode.